Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights Church. Uh, for the past month, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, which was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth about 20 years, uh, roughly 20 years after the death of Jesus. And the fundamental issue in Corinth that Paul wrote to address was this issue of division in the church. So Paul's letter is fundamentally um, an appeal for unity. And so as we pick up in the third chapter of Paul's letter, he has been explaining how true wisdom, godly wisdom, looks like sacrifice. And he turns his attention now to those who are leading the church community. Um, but the logic of the cross, this logic of the cross, had not yet shaped the Corinthian view of church leadership. So Corinthian Christians were still looking for church leaders who were wise in the same way that the intellectual elites of Corinth were wise. This was an honor culture, a place where intellectual uh, intelligence was widely esteemed. But Paul's letter is written to directly correct the Christian Corinthians in uh, that era. So the question that Paul addresses today is this. If church leaders are not called to be wise according to this age, as we looked at in chapter 2, then what are they called to be? What are the church leaders called to be? And Paul's answer is going to be simple but very rich. Church leaders are called to be slaves and servants of God. And he illustrates this for us through three analogies. And we're going to look at all three, but I'll list them here uh, for us. Number one, church leaders are gardeners in God's field. Number two, church leaders are construction workers in God's building. And number three, church leaders are servants in God's temple. So let's consider this first analogy and look at the uh, first couple of verses. So the Corinthian church had been planted by Paul. Apollos had come after Paul arrived and continued this work that Paul had started. So there were some in Corinth who were taught and mentored by Paul, and there were some who were being taught and mentored by Apollos. There, are, there were also people who were taught and mentored by Peter and probably, conceivably, a host of other teachers. Um, but what was happening was, instead of everyone just being happy that they had come to know the truth of the gospel through these, these gifts of God, through these men, uh, the Corinthian people began to create loyalties with these teachers, which then became basis for a power play. So factions were forming around these teachers. These teachers weren't teaching a false gospel. The people, the church, was using leaders to essentially esteem themselves. And factions were forming around them, and it was tearing apart the church community. So Paul has a particular response here to their respective uh, human allegiances. So let's look at what he says in verse 5. He starts out this way. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, 
God's building. So why does Paul use what? Why does he use the word what here? He knew, he knew who he was. He knew who he was. He knew who Apollos was. But why does he use the word what? He's, he's using a, a low-status vocabulary and drawing attention to Paul, Apollos' and Paul's and Peter's purpose as a church leader, not just their traits, not just their abilities and their intellect, but not just who are they, like who are they, but what are they? What are they here for? What are the pur- what's the purpose of even having an Apollos? What's the purpose of even having a Paul or a Peter? But Paul is saying with this, here is why it makes no sense. Here is why it makes no sense for you to divide into camps over Apollos and me and fight and compete. We're just servants. We're just gardeners. God is the field owner. He's the the owner of the vineyard that we're all tending to. Now, in the Corinthian mind, Paul would have known that field hands were not the intellectual elites. So in an honor culture, the servants are not the honorable ones. They're not the ones that Corinth is going to look to for wisdom. Only the field owner would have been seen as the wise one. He's the one truly worthy of honor and praise. And so Paul says, Corinthians, brothers, sisters, Ministers in God's field are gardeners and slaves. And if you knew that, if you were convinced that they were just gardeners and slaves, you wouldn't put them on a pedestal. You would not be competing. In and of themselves, Paul and Apollos are not the source of life. Paul is attesting to this. Their abilities are of no avail apart from the direction and empowerment of God. Gardeners and field hands can do this. They can plant, they can water, they can weed, and they can wait. But they cannot bring life out of the ground. Therefore, Paul says, it's foolish for us to just pick our favorite teachers, to pick our favorite leaders, and then essentially pit them against one another. This is what he's saying. Apollos and I are one. Apollos and I are one. Our respective efforts are a single collaborative agricultural project. We're doing this together. And conceivably, the way that he's writing it, it's like, and everyone who came before, and everyone who will come, we're always, uh, essentially, over the course of our life, we're going to be handing off that baton to another person who's going to pick up and continue to serve. Same for us here today. Ministers will come and go, but God's work will continue. But this is all underneath the authority of God, the owner of this vineyard, the owner of this field. So Paul, again, telling us it's destructive and dangerous to make us into competitors. It creates disunity in the church. It breaks up the church. So he entreats the Corinthians and us to do this, to place all of our trust, to place all of our attention in the field owner. It's God who makes the gospel word take root, and it's God who makes the gospel word produce this living community. But trusting God, again, we talked about this before, trusting God can sometimes sound like nothing, sound like the equivalent of doing nothing, but trusting God does not mean being passive any more than a farmer who cultivates a field of crops 
is passive. It's not passive. Farmers work in the shadeless heat. They engage the hard and diligent work of tilling and seeding, watering and waiting, and so should the leadership of the church. So should we. So practically, as God's living field, we should avail ourselves to all the nourishment that God has offered us here. And just name a few and kind of give us like some, just something to think about. These are not going to be surprises, but I hope that they are just fresh encouragements for us. So what, what can we avail ourselves? What nourishment in this field can we avail ourselves to that God's offered? First of all, his word, the Bible, which he says is like rain that comes down from heaven and life springs out of the ground. Our communion meal. Every week we take communion together. We're nourishing our faith through Jesus Christ himself as our food. Through confession and repentance, we're, we're essentially, we're in the dirt pulling out weeds of pride and jealousy and strife and deceit. We're planting and we are pulling living life with our parish and church family. This is the soil where God has planted us to grow at this point in our lives. You're going to be here for two years. You're going to be here for six months. You're going to be here for 10 years. Get in the soil. <laughs> Get in the people. Get in your parish. Prayer, where we can root ourselves in Jesus Christ. According to John, the true vine to the book of John, the true vine, we can abide with him. So if you're a Christian, don't starve yourself. Don't starve yourselves from these provisions that God has given richly to us to see us grow, to see this field flourish and bear fruit that's enjoyable for everyone. Don't uproot yourselves unnecessarily from the work that he's doing in you through these very things. Like the psalmist said, and, and John said, as we abide in Jesus, planted by streams of water, he will nourish us. He will, we will grow tall like oak trees with deep roots and choice fruits for all to enjoy, able to withstand storm and drought and the like. We'll grow together. The church, again, the church is God's field, not ours. We're just gardeners. So let's look at the second analogy. Church leaders are construction workers in God's building. We'll just pick up back in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul shifts the metaphor, he shifts the analogy from this field to a building and compares himself to this skilled building contractor 
who has carefully laid a foundation and then shared the ongoing work with other subcontractors, <laughs> as it were. He likens the church leadership to construction workers with God the Father as the owner of that property, providing every grace for every builder and every grace for anything to be built, all of this with a crucified Christ as the foundation for what's built. So, how should church leaders build God's building? What should we be doing? I believe that one of Paul's letters in the church of Ephesus, to the church of Ephesus, could be helpful. This is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. It reads this way. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, rather than this to and fro lifestyle, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a really rich text, and we can't get into all of the nuances here, but I just want, to catch, I want us to catch this. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave leaders to the church. He gave leaders to the church that were purposed to help build God's building by equipping the church for the work of ministry. The word equip here means to supply what's lacking. So church leaders are construction workers who care for and provide for others, who provide for the church so that they can join in the construction work of God's building. The elites in Corinth were, they were building their own social statuses and standings, their own personal honor. They were supplying themselves with their followers and their fans. It was self-aggrandizement really at its best. They were constructing buildings of personal glory. And Paul contrasts this by showing us that really wise church leadership seeks to equip others to construct God's building. It's giving to others what is necessary to carry out what God is asking of them. And a well-equipped church will mimic and fulfill much <clears throat> of what the leadership is called to. And Paul shows us that this produces a very unique body. Now the, 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 the elites in Corinth, they were just every, it's just sort of every man for himself. Who can get to the intellectual summit fastest or stay there longest? But in this economy, in God's economy, in God's building, something very unique is being built. It's a body. It's a building. It's, it's not a body that watches passively as one or two people build the, the building alone. No, it's, it's a living body that builds itself up in love as it's equipped as all of these things, all of these pieces and members working together. It's sort of a self uh, a sort of a self, like a self-loving, 
organism that's provided for by God, and it just continues to grow as every part is working properly together. Amazing. So as bricklayers and masons in God's building, we could ask these questions of how am I, how am I contributing to the building of this to the construction of this building? How, where am I laying the bricks and being a mason and a blacksmith and, and so forth? Maybe these are some questions that we could ask. Am I encouraging, am I encouraging in this church a unified faith in Christ Jesus? Am I seeking unity in this church to get everyone I know around Jesus and loving Jesus and seeing Jesus and enjoying Jesus? That's that's how I build the church. That's how I construct this building. Am I speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus to the church? Am I sharing the good news of what Jesus has done? Are we doing that? Am I caring for people and taking responsibility for their growth? Not just taking responsibility for my own, but also for them. As Drew said last week, that's what, that's what spiritually mature people do is they take responsibility for the care and growth of others. Am I purposing my work to be for the good of others? If so, then we're strengthening God's building. We're constructing that building If not, then we're probably building on something else that isn't Jesus. Now, in this part of the the text, we do need to engage a particularly difficult part. Um, Paul says that there's going to be a day when God will test and judge all the work that we've done by by way of a a fiery building inspection, (laughs) to put it lightly. I'm looking forward to it. Are you? Um, I was, I was just I was joking. Um, that's, my, that's how I joke. Um, where we have built with gold, with silver, and with precious stones, where we have done, where we have shared the gospel of Christ crucified, where we've built with that foundation in mind, then there will be refinement and reward as we've built with patience and with kindness and with gentleness and with self-control and love. where we have built with wood and grass and straw, with fads of human wisdom, with arrogance, with pride, with fear, with with anger. Those things are going to be consumed and we will suffer loss. But here's, here's the distinction. It's not a loss. It's not the loss of salvation. The words here for reward and loss are like are like wages paid to workers who do good and lasting work and fines imposed on builders who do inadequate temporal work. Paul is not talking about the fate of individual souls at the final judgment. This is not about you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about God's scrutiny of the building work of of the leaders and, and the church communities. That's what he's talking about. And just as a spoiler, all of us, sometimes we're going to build with precious stones and gold, and sometimes we're going to build with grass. We're not always going to do one and never the other. There are going to be times where we build uh, with one or the other. 
But this is not about our justification. We have to say that. We have to distinctly say that, that when Christ died on the cross, that was our justification. So now justification, that's the, the word justification just means that I, I am in right standing with God. Forgiven, clothed in righteousness, I'm justified. And we lay hold of that justification by believing that Jesus actually died for our sin and was raised from the dead for our righteousness. That that's our justification. It is Jesus himself. It's not by works. It's by grace through faith. So even so, even so that's true that we are justified in Christ, there is a day coming when our construction work of God's building will still be tested So we must be thoughtful and intentional in how we're building up God's church. And the interesting thing that Paul does here is he kind of goes back and forth between plural you and individual you. So individually, we're going to see what our work has done, but also corporately. We're going to see how we built Sojourn Heights like now. Like we're going to know what kind of work we did during that time. The church is God's building. It's not ours. We're just construction workers. So let's look at the final analogy. Number three, church leaders are servants in God's temple. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy And you are that temple. See, the church building is not just any building. The church building is the temple of God. It's the place where God's presence dwells. It's the place where his spirit dwells. Now those who, Paul, again, making a a very distinct admonishment and warning, those who damage the unity of the community, those who seek to tear down what God is building in his church, those people are going to incur judgment. There is a difference between those who build the church with inappropriate materials and those who are actively destroying the community. One is saved with singed eyebrows, right? The other is destroyed. God is not going to look lightly on those who seek to harm his people, his beloved, the church he gave his life for. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that, the God's, and that God's spirit dwells in you? Those two yous are plural. They're both plural. Do you not know that you all are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in us, like us, all of us, this corporate body? Paul paints an image of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the gathered community, the temple, the church. And the church leaders are to be servants in that temple. The word here for servants is household managers. And that sounds pretty technical, but, but really the connotation is that they, the servants are responsible to care for what belongs to somebody else and that these servants are going to be marked by holiness. So maybe servants in a temple, maybe that's a little bit too far of a reach for us. So let me borrow a more modern illustration from N.T. Wright. Uh, Church leaders are waiters in God's restaurant. 
The church is God's restaurant, not ours. We are just waiters. We're just servants. So how could waiters, how could it look for waiters and servants to be holy in this temple of God that's being built right now? To gladly and eagerly embrace a life of sacrifice and service, that is what church leaders should be willing to do, to embrace gladly and eagerly a life of self-sacrifice and service. To listen and respond, to care. And this is for all of us. To welcome one another and anyone, that anyone here, anyone is welcome here. Anyone is welcome to come and commune with the Lord, to come and know who he is. The doors of this temple are going to be wide open. Come and know the Lord. Come and meet him. Come and hear what he's done for you. Good waiters and good servants make sure that people have what is most needed. Good waiters bring you good food that they didn't cook. Good servants bring you, are going to bring you food that they didn't cook. And when you enjoy that food, they won't encourage you to praise them, but to praise the cook, to praise the owner of the restaurant. You will not go back to a restaurant with bad food and great waiters. Does that make sense? Oh, the food was terrible, but that waiter was amazing. I'm going back. No. But you will go back to a restaurant with great food and poor waiters. I know that our staff, our elders, our deacons, I know, that, I know that there have been times, I know there have been many times where we served you well, and I know that we have also not served you well. Waiters can ruin your dining experience. <laughs> but their job is really to serve unnoticed. The quality of the food, the quality of what is being delivered is really what matters. Have we, have the leadership, has the leadership of this church fed you all the true gospel? Have we prayed and asked for the real Jesus to be revealed? For the Holy Spirit to use the word to open our hearts and change us and transform us? That's good food. So don't glory in the waiters. Don't glory in the servants. Glory in the cook. Glory in the owner. Spiritual elitists, spiritual elitists make you come to them. Servants go to people. And never was that more gloriously experienced than when Jesus left heaven and came to serve us to his death. He was the vineyard owner who became the gardener, the building owner who became the bricklayer. Gosh, the white-collar worker who gladly, gladly became the blue-collar worker. The only one who deserved to be put in a, on a pedestal and be aggrandized, he was put on a cross and mocked as a false king. The one seated in the highest heaven allowed others to put him in the deepest grave, and on the cross he died for all of our selfish pursuits of ego and self-fulfillment. 
So now, now as these redeemed people, we don't, we don't build, we don't serve, we don't garden, we don't till to be saved. We do it to honor the one who's done that for us, who's always doing that for us. And through him, by his resurrection, we get to be who we were made to be. We get to be slaves and servants. You ever tried to be more than you're supposed to be? Isn't it crushing? This is actually a welcome to an identity that feels right. <laughs> feels right to serve someone so incredible rather than to be a slave to self. Let's end this way, and we'll look at this, these last verses. In verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You know, there was a, there was a Greco-Roman philosophy touted Greco-Roman philosophy touted this sort of like maxim that a wise man possesses all things. Paul declares to the church and its leaders, in this wisdom of Christ, all things are yours. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Peter, life, death, present, future, world, all of, all of it in Christ is yours. Interesting that he says, Paul is yours. Apollos is yours. See, kind of flips it on its head, isn't it? Because in the beginning of this chapter, they were saying, but I follow Apollos. Like, he's, he's, he, I belong to him. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. Paul is saying, no, they, they belong to you. They're my, my gift to you so that you might know me. Apollos and all these leaders, they were given to the Corinthians, by God. Sojourn is the same with us now. You are not here for our fandom. Does that make sense? You're not here for more Twitter followers or Instagram likes or whatever. You're we have been given to you to serve you, to lay our life down for you, and we're glad to do that, eager to do that. because he gladly lays his life down for us. Don't be deceived. Don't boast in mere human beings. The point is not to decide which slave you follow, if we can use that language. <laughs> the Corinthians were looking at Apollos and going, yeah, I'm following that big guy. And it's like, well, would you follow a slave? No, I wouldn't follow a slave. Well, but that's what a church leader is. That's what Jesus is. Would you follow a the king who became a slave. Glory in Jesus, glory in God. He's the owner, he's the source. And in this upside-down community, we're going to esteem the lowly. It's beautiful. It's, our world is, in, is invariably obsessed with elevating the already elevated. 
But in this upside-down community, the community is right to esteem, and the, esteem, the esteemed are right to just lower themselves and say, hey, I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. Do you have any power? Do you have any privilege? Do you have any wisdom? Do you have any gifts? Surrender them to the good of others and be conformed to Christ. We aren't just building a pretty building to live alone in. The purpose of, is for God to be glorified in our midst, but also for our neighbors and others who don't know him to be invited into this beautifully adorned temple built on Jesus and adorned with beautiful, precious stones that, that Peter says are, are you. We want to labor faithfully to see God's work through us stand the test of time and fire. But it makes, there's no reason for us to choose between camps of teachers. We're in Jesus' camp. And as Sojourn Heights, as we tend and build and serve and we participate in the reality of God's dominion, we're set free from anxiety and petty scrambling for human boasting and approval. We all belong to God in Christ. And as we glory in him by his grace, he's going to heal all of our divisions. Let me pray for us. Father, we honor you as the owner of the field, the owner of the building, the owner of this temple. You are our master, our father. Jesus, you are our king. Holy Spirit, you are our wise, our wise counselor. And God, we pray that you would make this so at Sojourn Heights that we would be people who are eager and glad to lay down our lives, to pour out our lives, to watch others flourish and build well your building, to thrive well in your field, to grow into oaks of righteousness in your field and to share choice fruits that you bear by your spirit and God, I pray that that would just make this a beautifully adorned temple where people, where the nations are welcomed and they get to meet you and know you. Father, make us a thoughtful, mindful, wise group of construction workers and bricklayers and masons. Make us wise Give us meekness of, of wisdom, as you say in James, the kind that is patient. Yeah. Father, we pray that you would bear this fruit and more by your word, by your spirit. God, help us to, again, to abide in Christ, to abide in the vine, we pray. God, we love you. And we thank you, we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.